Uh, sure, 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 sure. It is Hey Brother Vici. Very cool song. Thank you so much to Gareth, Cliff, and the gang. Back again Monday, 6 to 9, same place. Hey, you're with cliffcentral.com. My name is Andrew Levy. Flip, I haven't even got on air, and people are already going crazy on Twitter about this issue. As uh, Gareth spoke spoke about earlier, we are going to be speaking about white privilege and the articles that a certain young lady, journalist, Varashni Pillay, from the Mail and Guardian wrote. Uh, if you haven't seen them, we'll put them on Twitter. 23rd of February, she wrote six things white people have that black people don't. And South Africa completely and utterly erupted. Conversations were going down in boardrooms, in cafes. Uh, here at Cliff Central as well, we had some really interesting discussions. We're going to be speaking to her about why she did this and what have been the effects, if any, afterwards uh, regarding this, uh, these articles. Of course, there were two of them. Hey, if you've got some uh, discussion points around this, if you want to get your voice heard, uh, give us a shout, 0861-555-189. Of course, you can hit us up on Twitter as well, at Yebo underscore L-E-V-Y or cliffcentral.com. And WeChat is going crazy as well. You can give us a shout on WeChat as well. Uh, we'll get to some of those messages. And if you have a question for Varashni specifically, we'll give uh, you the opportunity to speak to her. Of course, it is Friday, so we want to play some nice, very nice tunes as well uh, as we speak about the race debate and what, as white people, we need to know about black people. And let's turn it on its head. What do black people need to know about white people? It's all coming up in just a little bit. In the meantime, here is ZHU with Paradise Awaits. Oh, the song is just so hot for a Friday. Have a listen. I'm bored with this mindset, walking around just talking my shit. Conversation based around just sex, words at the tip of my tongue. Love you, baby. I'm bored with this mindset, tell me one thing I must forget. Think about the naked women in my bed, lost at the tip of my mind. I'm bored with this mindset, walking around just talking my shit. Conversation based around just sex, words at the tip of my tongue. Love you, baby. I'm born with this mindset. Tell me one thing I must forget. Think about the naked women in my bed. Lost at the tip of my mind. How cool is that song? ZHU with Paradise Awaits. Uh, of course, we're going to be playing some cool tunes throughout the week. Uh, but at the moment, we're talking a little bit about this race discussion. Um, a very, very talented journalist named Varashni Pillay, she wrote an article uh, about what six things white people um, should know about black people. And um, it has caused some stir on on, on social media. <laughs> I just mentioned it, and suddenly it just went absolutely crazy on my Twitter feed. We'll be getting to some of those questions. Varashni Pillay is going to be in studio. She's going to talk a little bit about what's going down, why she wrote the articles, and what's been the response. Of course, we want to hear from you as well. 0861-555-189. What do you think about these articles? Did they help? Um, did they give you some kind of introspection that you didn't have before? And... Um, how do we take it further? How do we go further than this? Um, Varashni is in studio at the moment. Uh, she's looking a little bit uh, perplexed by the, the traffic jams out here in the north. Good morning to you. How are you doing? Good morning, Andrew. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Totally, totally chilled. Now, you've uh, written two articles um, about what white people should know about black people. The one seemed like it was a bit of a justification article mm. uh, compared to the first one, which came out and surprised everyone. I was in Cape Town, actually. myself. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, it must have. It must have. I was in Cape Town, actually, uh, when, when the article dropped, and it was really interesting to see some of my friends who are mm. white 
uh, engaging with this and, and actually positively going, geez, I didn't even think about that. Mm. Give us a little bit of understanding who Varashni is before we get on that path. Or, you know, people think you've just come out of the blue. You've been a journalist <laughs> for a long time at the Mail and Guardian. Well, that's an, that's an interesting question. I've been on a few interviews about that. That's the first time I've been asked that. Okay. So, um, <laughs> Uh, so I'm a journalist. I've been writing a column for about five years, actually. Um, so it's caused tours in different areas at different times, but I think this is the first one that found such a wide resonance. I tend to write about political issues and current affairs, so perhaps that's why I haven't um, been heard in other circles. I Yeah, so I studied as a journalist, have worked as a journalist for about seven, seven eight years now, and I worked for the Mayan Garden for most of that time. So you've you've been doing a whole bunch of stuff. I see uh, you've got a really cool new article about the plight of India and Indian women and mm. so on, which has been really interesting as well. Good feedback there. Talk to us about this these specific articles, um, the six things that uh, white people have that black people don't. If you haven't seen the article yet, where have you been? It's been absolutely crazy, but we'll post it again at yebo underscore L-E-V-Y. Uh, if you're on Twitter, check it out there uh, and give us your thoughts as well. What made you decide at this point I need to write this article? You know, it's interesting because I tackle race issues quite a lot in my writing and in my columns. And I, I wrote, I've written several times about race and it always causes a bit of a stir and a bit of a reaction. This time around, um, you know, I actually decided not to write about race for a while because it actually is exhausting. I mm. think a lot of people, uh, people who are white assume that people like me love to go around talking about race, but it's actually exhausting. And I think a lot of people of color who are trying to tell their experiences find it exhausting talking about race, the constant justifications you have to make, explanations, trying to explain to other people your experiences. But what happened this time around is, um, you know, I talk about a variety of topics every week, but I actually had a conversation with a friend of mine who was visiting from um, out of town. She lives in another African country, and she's a white South African, and she was visiting South Africa, and she was struck anew after her time away at the denialism in certain circles that she mixes in mm. about how there is still the refrain of, why can't they just get over it? You know, we're all equal now. Mm. And I just... And, and, you know, she really, she really was taken aback at how strong the sentiment was. And I was too. And I think I tend to mix in circles with people like yourself who are quite liberal and, 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 you know, on, on the same. Yes, um, I'm art. Yes. <laughs> I just outed you. And on the same sort of maybe, uh, you know, plain as me in terms of how we think about historical privilege and the injustices of the past and how it affects the present. But I realized a lot of people genuinely don't know. They genuinely think we're all equal and we are equal in some sense politically, mm. but economically because of the political inequality of the past, we are vastly different. Mm. And I felt it was important to point that out in a very visceral, real way, like really, you know, examples of how we're different. Mm. Because when we talk about policy, when we talk about um, macro uh, structural injustices, people lose it. They, they, they lose the heart issue. And I really wanted to drive it home. Like, you know, the person of color you're sitting alongside in your class that you, you're friendly with, that yes. you see at church, whatever it is, they're actually coming from a very different historical place from you mm. that is multi-generational. Now, you know, it was interesting because I, I saw an article with you um, on an Afrikaans uh, TV network. Uh, yep. <laughs> Your Afrikaans is as good as mine, I must be honest. <laughs> doesn't say much. But, hey. <laughs> so that doesn't say much at all. But it was interesting because um, I think one of the faux pas the interviewer said in the beginning was she's like, now, Varashni, and I'm putting on my Afrikaans. <laughs> you are. She's like, I'm sorry. She's like, Varashni, you, you are not black. And... At that moment, I was like, but uh, there again, she seems to have missed the, the mm, point of, mm. of this whole thing. She's trying to justify that you probably don't have the point of view of a black South African. Um, mm. Whereas Apartheid just mentioned that this whole group of people that weren't white were considered black. And there seems to be a bit of a disconnect there. Um, what have you, you know, mm. in your experiences after this article, 
have people come at you and attack you and say, but you're Indian, so mm-hmm. you're obviously not, you don't even know what the plight of the black person mm-hmm. is. And have black people also said, listen, you, you didn't get it? Um, it's a very interesting question, Andrew, and it's a very vast and, and complex question and one that I write about at various times. Um, so I have quite a... Um, a personal theory about all of this. Um, firstly, just in Kabosa's defense, I also was taken aback by the remark, but she was generally a great interviewer, but I think she was trying to make a point about how you don't have to be a particular race to understand them. She, I think that was the point she was making mm. with that particular remark. But um, so... To go back a bit to this issue, um, during the struggle, if you know your South African history, there was an attempt to rule, uh, to divide and rule. Um, Indian and colored people were given special. There, were, there was an attempt at concession by the National Party to give, yes. you know, to, to satisfy their critics by giving colors and Indians special privileges. Certain rights. Yeah, so there was a tricameral, um, par- you know, parliament or something like that that was developed. A lot of Indian and colored people turned that down. And in, in, a, in an attempt to fight back against this attempt to divide and rule, they declared themselves generically black. So it was a, it was an it was a it was an action that that was aimed at solidarity. Now, several decades later, that's become a lot more complex because you might have had a lot of Indian and colored people who did that, but of course there were some that didn't. So it's mm. complicated history. Yes. Um, of course, you know, if my family obviously was part of the ones that did, but that doesn't necessarily mean much. I mean, I myself would identify with the struggles of black people without necessarily saying that I've had the same struggles as them. Mm. So that's where. I would strive to empathize with where black people struggled more than I did and more than Indian people did because that is also true. There are levels of disadvantage and black South Africans did struggle more and were disadvantaged more. Um, There was... um there was like, I think, double the amount of rand spent on Indian children that they were spent on black children during apartheid. Which doesn't partly, say much as well. It doesn't say much. <laughs> it was still a fraction of what was spent on white people. But it was partly because the Indian community was quite tight and a little bit more economically uh, ahead. So they were able to like match the apartheid government's rands. So that's a complicated situation as well. But just coming back to the identity part of it, I personally... Uh, unlike previous generations, so I've had lots of older Indian people who are activists say to me, why do you call yourself a person of color? Why do you call yourself a brown South African? For a while, I called myself a brown South African. And I was like, <laughs> because I, cause in my generation, there is a little bit of a, uh, I'm not sure I want you to call yourself a black South African. Yes. It's, it's different now. The struggle is over. And, and, and there are different um, kinds of Indians. There's the Guptas. You know, there's all kinds of crazy things happening. And I think it's careful. It's important to distinguish the nuances of, of where we come from while still showing solidarity. So I try to do that with myself. Now, coming to your other question, I definitely get accused all the time by all people of different things. I get accused of trying to be black, of identifying with white people, of being pro-Malema and secretly trying to push his agenda, which I find the most oh, bizarre, of course you are. bizarre I mean, accusation definitely. of them all. Um, so I get I get accused by so this time around no black people not that I think there's a black homogenous position there's people who respond to me in different ways yes. but uh, there weren't really many black people saying how do you talk on our behalf in fact a lot of black people one person said to me something very interesting she said I was in tears when I read your article and I was so grateful that someone who wasn't black wrote it mm. so that there is a sense that this is something that's real this is a real issue we're mm. not just whining. Um, and there's obviously always the, the white right wing who, who don't really try to understand the nuances of race and will say things like, oh, but she's Indian. What the hell? You know, sorry, am I allowed to say that? <laughs> yeah. um, you can say whatever you like. <laughs> it's Cliff Central. Exactly. Yay. There you go. <laughs> yeah. That's interesting because um, it seems like what you, I mean, maybe you tell us a little bit about what you wanted to get out of this article. Um, I know you, you, you quite clearly stipulated, but give it to our, our listeners. What did you want to get out of this mm-hmm. article? And, and, did you think that you accomplished that? I think, I, uh, you know, what does one want to get out of any article? <laughs> There's always the, the issue of preaching to the converted. Um, 
I didn't want to preach the converted again, so I chose a very hectic headline to kind of scare people into reading it. I, I you know, I, I've been talking about race for so long, and I am preaching. To, I am talking to people who think like me, um, and then the people who don't think, who, who think otherwise, tend to get very prickly and defensive and shut themselves off to the discussion. So I guess what I was trying to do is give some really meaty points that are true of my experience of many other South Africans of color I know, particularly black South Africans, even more so than me. I was trying to give these as as really solid examples. I was trying to provoke people into realizing that the person that they walk alongside in the street, Mm. the teller that they interact with, but even the person on their own class level, their black colleague who they see driving a nice car, has a very different set of particularly economic challenges that they don't have, Mm. thanks to generational privilege. I was trying to really get that across as a general point. There's obviously exceptions, um, but as a general point, there is such a difference between you and the other, and to just be empathetic towards that. I was trying to provoke people to empathy, and perhaps, perhaps provoking people to empathy doesn't always work, but I was personally amazed and gratified at the enormous responses that this generated and debates. It, just in my Facebook circle, I saw these debates unfolding amongst just white people. Mm. And there is a thing happening amongst a lot of black South Africans right now where they're kind of going, particularly the intellectual kind of uh, layer, kind of going, we don't want to be part of this debate anymore. You guys need to have this debate. We don't want to help you hold your hand and guide you through this process. Mm. We're not your saviors. Like We're not this redemptive black figure. Yes. You need to go and figure this stuff out for yourself. If you don't feel comfortable in South Africa, figure that out for yourself. And I was gratified that a lot of white South Africans ran with this conversation. Really debated and wrestled Took with their on, friends yeah. and came to a place of amazing, just like a um, debate and consensus and, and, and just, yeah, and, and understanding, which is what I found great. I think that's, that's an interesting thing that you bring up. You know, everyone is tired of the race debate, but there's still so much to do, so yeah. far to go. In terms of conversations, you know, conversations that are honest, um, a couple of months ago I had this kind of existential crisis mm-hmm. where I'm like, I don't associate with white people in South Africa because of X, you know. Gareth always laughs at me because he says that I'm, I'm actually black. Um, but, but that's not the case. I'm actually trying to be more South African. And what does more South African mean? What is it to be South African? Uh, we're speaking to Varashni Pillay at the moment. She is a mail and guardian, uh, distinguished journalist. She's written those articles about what white people should know about black people. Six things. Uh, we're going to be speaking to about, her, we're going to be speaking a little bit tongue twisted. We're going to be speaking to her about what those things are. Of course, we want to hear from you as well, 0861-555-189. Also hit us up on Twitter. We want to discuss the, dis- the the topic and hear from you. If you have any questions to Varashni, then holler at us. We're also going to be speaking to some black people about what it was like to live with this legacy. Hey, it's Mark Robinson on cliffcentral.com. Good morning. Mark Ronson, Uptown Funk on cliffcentral.com. What a nice little tune for Friday. Hey, if you've just joined us, welcome to the show. 
Uh, my name is Andrew Levy. We are talking to Varashni Pillay about her race discussions. Uh, we call it the White Talks uh, here on Cliff Central. Uh, Varashni is in studio. If you want to chat to her at Yebo underscore L-E-V-Y, let us know what you think about these discussions, about the articles that went down. We're also posting them if you haven't seen them. Uh, Henk Owache. I hope I said that right. Henk Owache says, refreshing to hear people talking openly and with each other and not about each other mm-hmm. uh, at Varashni, which I think is quite interesting. Varashni, you were saying that... Um, the response to these articles has been quite intense and, and quite different um, to what you're expecting. Let's get into that in a little bit. But but first, take us through what are the six things that you need to tell me, me being white. Hmm. Okay, so the first thing was, um, wow, we have to like, remember it. You know this <laughs> off by heart. Okay, let me put okay. this list in front. Here's your article. Thank right? you. I'm talking about so much and I don't actually have any Generational words. wealth, I think, was the first one. I didn't one. have to count on everything. Okay, so, um, so generational wealth is quite a key one. Um, it, it, it really is about how people were allowed to own land. I mean, we're talking about something that happened one generation ago, not yes. even. It happened t- 21 years ago. It happened very recently. So the Land Act literally moved people off their land and gave them crappy land on the far outskirts of, 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 of the city. Um, in my parents' case, they were given Dolomite land. Uh, you know, that, that land actually sinks. It actually cracks. Mm. It's not really good to build on. They were moved away from their places of work. More importantly, they weren't allowed to train and own businesses. Yes. So you as Andrew, I don't know your situation, but your ancestors had the opportunity because they were white yes. to build wealth. Yeah. When people say to me, but I'm a poor white, I'm like, I get that. But, the but majority- that's your fault, huh? <laughs> You're the idiot who didn't make use no, of no, that. Look, look, life was hard <laughs> for everyone, but life was harder for black people. They right. weren't allowed. They didn't have jobs reserved for them. I mean, there was an enormous amount of jobs reserved for white people. There were business opportunities. There was wealth. There was, there was so many things available for them to build this, this sort of, the sort of like status, which leads into my next point of social capital. Even if your family fell on hard times, they have social capital. Now, mm. if you studied sociology or any of those things, you'd, you know what this is. It's, um, it's a very intangible thing, but it's the ability for you to still look quite middle class and presentable, even if you don't have a cent in your bank account <laughs> and people to take you seriously. So even if you, Andrew, had to like lose everything, you would still have more than a beggar. And think about why that is. It's because you have a particular accent. Mm. You have a particular knowledge base, which helps you relate to other people, to employers. It, it, you have, you have something else, which is, um, I don't have that on the, on the episode, under social capital. You have a network of people. Yes. Uh, who can help you. So, so you would be less likely to be on the streets if you were to go broke. Well, you have access to it, right? I think yeah. that's one of the big things. Um, you speak about it so nicely here. Um, it's that spare laptop that your parents let you use, mm. um, you know, during varsity or, mm. or if your one breaks, for example. Yeah. And it's so funny because a mate of mine had that exact, exact thing. <laughs> when he read this article, he was blown away because he's like, dude, that's me. I can't <laughs> believe it. She knows me. How does so she know funny. me? How does she know me? And it's I have so- many white friends. <laughs> 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 but it's so true, right? Yeah. We, we totally take that for granted that we actually yes. have that opportunity to, um, you know, gain these kind of resources. Mm. And if you don't have those resources, life becomes very difficult. And, and look, I'm not in my second column, you know, uh, how, 
uh, hard work, white work doesn't negate white privilege. Yes. Um, so, so I have lots of dear white friends who are like brothers and sisters to me who really work so hard, but they were given certain things that made that easier for them, mm. made a progression in life easier for them. Yes. And like you say, it's, it's like access to resources. It's uh, a loan now and then at, from a family member at preferential interests. Yeah. Um, instead of from a loan shark who will come after you and everything you have. Absolutely. Um, it's, it's that kind of thing. So that's social capital. Early childhood development is quite a, a thing I've thought about for a long time. And I, it's a silent topic. People don't really talk about it. And it's a bit of a controversial one. But basically, um, I was at a talk once and a very well-known media person was on a debate with some young black people uh, who were talking about the experiences as young black people. Come on, who was this media no, person? No, shame, Come on. apologized for it. No. Uh, and he spoke okay. very favorably about the article. Because <laughs> I was thinking about him as I wrote it. Okay. And uh, there was this panel and, and, and the young black people were talking about their frustrations of not being taken seriously and how they just would like some mentorship. They, they just feel like they, they, they're they not very confident of themselves and they just wish that people would come alongside them. They're seen as bright stars in the media and they just wish that they, people would come alongside them. You know, I can understand how some people might have read that as a bit whiny. Yes. I didn't. I just read it as like, okay, that's interesting. Yes. Uh, but it is a generation, a, a millennial thing where they feel they, they're entitled to a lot more. I don't necessarily think it's a young black person thing. It's a, it's a, it's a generational thing. Um, and then this guy said to them, I worked very hard for what I have and you should too. Stop expecting handouts. Mm. My parents gave me nothing. I had to work for everything I had. And there was an uproar in the conference. People stood up and, and, and said to him, that was unacceptable. You yeah, have, you've totally. just ignored so much history. These people are not the same as you. And I was thinking about him as I wrote that. I was like, even if you worked so hard, like Andrew, you've, pro- you've worked pretty hard to get to where you are today. I've worked incredibly I can tell. hard. <laughs> Averagely hard. Okay, it's sort of hard. Um, but, but you know, you, you've, you've applied your skills. You've, you've worked hard. You haven't slacked off. Um, however, before the age of five, your parents did some cool things for you, right? Very they cool. They read to you. They played with you. Mm-hmm. They um, fed you the right kind of food. Now, a lot of – and then by the time you got to preschool, you were already ahead of most young black children. Yeah. Who probably – who a lot of – a vast majority grew up in single-parent homes. Their mothers are going off to work. They're left with a, a distant family member or someone in the community who's not as invested in them. He's not going to mm. play with them. Give them those tactile um, games to develop their, their, their motor skills. So by the time they hit grade one, they're on the back foot. Now, there's something that happens with your confidence, okay? So when you and I got to grade one, because I also had the privilege of this with my parents, we were like, hey, look at me. I'm a little bit ahead of the curve. And mm-hmm. you just feel confident. And you know what yes. that confidence does for you if you've read Malcolm Gladwell? Yes, I was about it, to say Malcolm Gladwell. Yeah, absolutely. if you're born it, in January compared to December. Yeah, you know? it's, it's, it's minor things like that that push your trajectory at an exponential level that you are not aware of. And so that's what I meant by early childhood development. It's an interesting one because um, I was in Msinga in December um, trying to learn Zulu. I'm on this quest. Nice. And, um, well done. Thank you. No, I'm, I'm not doing it because of well done. I, I think it's a priority Absolutely. that you speak Absolutely. a language of this country. But, yeah. but one of the things that was really interesting for me was how young, um, the population was. Mm-hmm. There's all these kids who are aged one to six, um, who are at home with granny and grandpa. And that's because they're actually shipped home because mom and dad are working such hectic jobs in the towns, mm-hmm. um, in Johannesburg, in, in Durban, in Peter Maritzburg, so far away and don't have the time or space or money, mm-hmm. perhaps, mm-hmm. to actually look after their children. Now, um, for most white people, and again, these generalizations are difficult, and that's, I suppose, people are highlighting. Yes. But for a lot of white people, they never had to feel that. I definitely didn't. Let mm. me talk about me. I never had to feel the idea of being looked after my grandparents mm. because my parents were working too hard. Sure, they worked hard, mm. but I was still at home. There was someone looking after me. I had a, a very decent surrounding, mm. um, books, as you say, and, and learning materials, and it makes a huge difference. Absolutely. I mean, um, 
my poor husband's gonna probably die at home. But you know, he's <laughs> he's from he's from not a very rich white family. Uh, but they had enormous rich cultural and educational legacy. They were educators in the family. So even though they fell in very hard times, equivalent to my parents actually, they had a different um, set of of resources to the to a person of color. Yeah. It's interesting, um, you know, the, the, you speak next about the benefit of the doubt, which is a fascinating one. And, and I really love this, this issue. Mm-hmm. This, this really hit home for me. Um, last year, someone said to me the following thing that white is institutionalized, mm. meaning that if you're white and you walk into a boardroom, you're going to be given more of a chance than if you're black. Absolutely. Talk to me a little bit about this. What, what is the, the feedback on this point specifically? Well, something I didn't mention in the column, but just now that you said, it's so true about that boardroom thing. So I always say to people, if it wasn't for BE requirements, I wouldn't be appointed to many of the leadership positions I've enjoyed in my life. Mm. Um, I, and, and people will say PE is so terrible, but PE, I agree, has been implemented badly, but something like it is necessary when you're coming up against an institutionalized white culture. Yes. Because as human beings, we hire people who look like us and who remind us of ourselves. Yep. Um, unless you're very consciously countering that, yep. you are instinctively drawn to people who remind you of yourself. Mm. So I, um, They share the same values as me. They're also, corporately fit. Well, uh, yeah, you know, that, that's one way of looking at it. But, you know, I, I hired people for a long time. I, I ran the Mail and Guardian online team for many years. And and I found myself doing that. You know, there were an ordinate amount of Indian women <laughs> on the team. <laughs> so, like, um, excellent. Just, excellent. You know, just admitting that as, as a fault of mine. And and I think we do that. We, we, we tend to, as human beings, think, I need someone who's going to work really hard in this position like myself. Mm. And so you need something, an official policy that will counter that and say, no, you're actually obliged to look beyond the cultural cues and find someone's value. So if someone's accent is different from yours, whether it's a black accent or an Afrikaans accent, because it's a stereotype that, you know, a mm. thick Afrikaans accent might mean you're stupid. Yes. Look beyond that. Or and racist. Mm. You know, that's the other thing, or I racist, suppose. yeah, which like, is kind of ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> and we are. There's a difference between, I suppose, racist and rach- racially prejudiced, which mm. is another column that you Absolutely. can write at some stage. Um yeah. But I think the, your fifth point is the financial head start. Yeah, that was the most controversial. And I'm, I kind of wish maybe I hadn't put that in because so many people just obsessed with that. I didn't get a car, therefore this entire article is false. <laughs> it was like, you know, you know, uh, or like I didn't get a free education. So the article is false. It's just, just like, you know, it, it really saddened me that people were just so literal about that. Yes. Point. There yeah. were examples of a financial head start. A financial head start can also just... You just have to think a little bit about what you were given. Um, if you were the poorest of the poor white South African, you were in the minority. Okay, yeah. Like the majority of white South Africans were given some kind of financial head start that black South Africans have not gotten, mm. um, particularly in the past. Uh, you can talk about the middle class now, but that's a very uh, recent phenomenon and it's not exactly widespread. Absolutely. And I think, you know, interesting to this point of Roshni, looking at my own life, I, I remember when I was at school, at high school, surrounded by a whole bunch of affluent people, predominantly white. And um, it was a private school, so it was quite wealthy and, and well off. And everyone was getting cars at 18 and mm. they were getting the VW um, Golf 4. Mm. That was the big thing. The Golf 4 was the wow. big big car at the time. You know, rocking, it's a brother. It's, a, it's, a, it's, <laughs> it's an amazing car. Anyway, and, and my dad sat me down and said, you're going to get your grandfather's <laughs> VW Beetle 1976. And I went ballistic. I'm I was sure. like freaking out, you know, that my social status is going to be completely disrepaired. And the point of the matter is, 
you know, looking back at that situation, I was, I was in this bucket that needed to read this article at that time because mm-hmm. I completely didn't think of situation, completely didn't think of it's privilege there. Yeah. It is totally relative. And the fact that I got wheels of any sort mm-hmm. meant that I was ahead of the curve. Yeah. It just meant that, you know. In fact, uh, the, the editor of a uh, report, Valdemar Pulse, I've been reading a lot of Afrikaans lately. He well wrote, done. He well wrote done. a response uh, saying that very thing. He said, you know what? It was a car. He liked all this about how his car kept falling apart, but it was a car. So, so absolutely, um, there, there is that sense that people are in their bubbles. I mean, on CakeNet and the show I went on, they did Vox Pops with uh, a lot of Afrikaans students. Mm. And a majority of them were just like, I didn't benefit at all. I have no benefits. And they're all pro- sitting there at a very, um, privileged university, you know, probably with cars. Yeah. It's it's interesting. Um, one of the the things you said in your article was sit down with one of your black friends slash colleagues and find out what apartheid did uh, for you, how it affected how it affected you. So we're going to get one of my white, I mean white, my black <laughs> friends. Nice. <laughs> you see, I, that was a big faux pas. Uh, my black friends on the, on the phone uh, in just a little bit and talk a little bit about what apartheid meant to the, to him and uh, and how it's affected his life. Uh, he's, he's a 20-something, so uh, he's obviously moved on, but what it has meant for him and what he wants me to understand. So we'll talk a little bit about that later. Varashni, one of the things that was interesting to me that, that wasn't pointed out in this article and I'm sure you've had a lot of people say this to you, but the interesting point for me is actually location and what difference that makes for white versus black people. And I mean it in the following way. Black people could only live in certain places in South Africa, traditionally, legacy-wise, uh, during apartheid. And you know, that hasn't changed much. You know, the, yes, there's this rising black middle class that people love to Google and then send <laughs> you articles on. But the truth of the matter, it hasn't changed much. Mm-hmm. And I work with a whole bunch of young people, um, predominantly black, from townships. And the plight of just getting to a job, getting mm-hmm. to a good education every single day is an hour and a half at least in a taxi. Mm-hmm. That's time that you could be using to do homework. That's time you could be using to have leisure, to mm-hmm. to to do exercise. That's time you could be engaging with family. Mm-hmm. That time is taken away from you because of that, and we do not even think about that. We don't. And, I mean, there's a term for this, right? It's called black tax. Um, and black tax is the additional stuff that a lot of black people have to do to just do the stuff that white people do normally. So, mm. so travel is a, is a big part of black tax because of the spatial legacy of apartheid. So to all those people who insist that apartheid is over, its legacy is with us, and, and it's in our towns. So someone in Soweto, like you say, hour and a half to get to their job, and, and, and you know, that, that, is, that is enormous. That is, that is a lot of their time. But beyond that, it is the fact that they have to support maybe five people. They're the first totally. one earning, yep. the first one graduated. Uh, you and I, when we graduated, we, okay, I have it a little bit, not as much as a black person, and you probably don't have it. No, so I don't. I, I don't have it. You don't, you know, and some white people do have to support their parents, but, you know, a, a, large, a, lot, a lot of people don't. And for a lot of black South Africans, it's not just their parents. If there's a funeral, they have to give money. Um, if someone needs to go to school, they need to give money. A friend of mine uh, gave a really funny example. He says, you need, you need to go back home, you know, because on holidays in December, white people go on holiday, black people go home. Mm. And he says, when you go home, the big thing is you need to have as many packets oh, uh, as possible. So yeah. full of food, of sweets, yeah. of toys for not only your immediate family, but you know, in the traditional African way of a family, which is, yeah. you know, aunties, uncles, not even by blood, mm. but just by location or, or I suppose through this kind of community. Mm. And you've got to support them. And, and it's, it is a very hard uh, life and I suppose burden for some people. It, I think um, burden is the right word. I think emotionally, 
I remember I was in court once. We were covering a court case uh, as journalists, and it was running late. And the journalist just got it to talking. It was some black journalist and myself. And I mentioned this issue of how white South Africans don't. I, I just said, "Wow, you know, it's like this hidden cost of us having to help our parents." And just the outpouring of stories that came out. I'm yes. just like, it's so hard. I've just been told I need to come up with 60,000 rand for something. I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I can't say no. You can't say no. You yeah. will be alienated. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, so I think that's an invis- invisible thing. We can talk about the culture of it, but actually it's an economic reality. Um, there's very few earning people for certain communities. And black tax also is about the benefit of the doubt. It's about, you know, walking into a job and, and people expecting that you're a BE appointment and you're a token appointment mm. and having to prove yourself. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Well, what can you do about it is, is one of the things that, that came out of the article. Not many people got to that point, unfortunately, and <laughs> just started going crazy on social media. But one of the things was to sit down with, uh, with one of your black colleagues or friends um, and, uh, and talk to them a little bit about what it was like growing up and what it is like now um, in South Africa as a black person. So I've got one of my friends online. This is a deeply personal thing. Um, very good friend of mine. We work together and, uh, his name is Rory Sung, um, Shabalala. Uh, Rory, good morning to you. Thank you so much for joining us, uh, on Cliff Central. We are talking to Varashni Pillay about the six things that, uh, black people don't, or that white people don't know about black people. Um, I wanted to get you online just to talk to a little bit about your past. Um, because we've been friends f- for a number of years now and interacted on a social level for a, for a lot of time. But perhaps there's stuff that I don't know about that's going on in the background because of the fact of your background, because of the fact that you're black. Good morning to you. Morning, morning, Andrew. Morning, Varashni. Hi, Rory. Um, good to be back. Hi there. <laughs> so, Rory, tell me, tell me a little bit about what it's like, you know, coming from a background of, of your own, you're, you're a Pretoria boy, um, you know, grown up in Shoshanguve, and now are living in the boardrooms of um, the the high echelons of South Africa because you're doing so brilliantly well. What is it like coming from that kind of background? Yeah, I think you know it, it, <clears throat> there's two things that you you're struggling with, and that's just you know generally. Yeah, go for it. Have we lost him? I think we have lost Rory. Okay, we'll come back to I him in the moment. Two things. I want to other two things we could add to the five things. There's a long list here, guys. Uh, uh, we'll, we'll try to get Rory back on the line now. Um, but just going to some tweets and WeChats. Uh, we've got Remo on WeChat. He said, as a cape colored guy, I've always felt this way. Admittedly, I haven't put enough work to make myself truly successful, but I've always felt that because of where I've wanted to be in life, was out of my reach. So why even bother? And now I feel like an idiot for having that mindset. Many colored kids now are falling into the same trap by thinking, well, all the blacks are getting the jobs. And and that's inverted commas. And especially so in Cape Town. Difficult. Very, very difficult. It shows you how it's not a homogenous thing. Um, I think a lot of a lot of black uh, South Africans feel that way. Why bother? The elite are getting the positions. Yes. So if you see a young guy, just don't think, oh, all black people are um, benefiting from cronyism and corruption. I think that's a very, you know, you've you got to understand that every story is unique and there's, again, structural stuff informing it. There was a really good advert. I'm going to post it on Twitter now, at Yebo underscore L-E-V-Y. It was actually done for SABC1 and then banned. Mm-hmm. Um, and it basically reversed roles of white people and black people in South Africa. It was brilliant. I'm going to put it on Twitter now. Uh, we're going to try to get Rory back on the line. Rory, are you there with us? Hey, I'm back, yeah. Hey, brilliant. Okay, so you said there are two things that we're missing. What are they? 
Yeah, so I think, you know, there's the legitimacy of you as a person and there's the legitimacy of your ideas. Um, and those two things are, are, are really important in terms of how you advance. So irrespective of whether you go and start your own thing and you need people to back you, or whether you, you, you're in a company and you're trying to get your, your ideas across, what's going to help you up the ladder and into a position of influence is ultimately whether the people around you believe that your ideas and yourself are legitimate. Now, if you're already starting from, from, from a, a deficit, it's already very difficult to keep up with your peers, not because you, you're inferior, but just because of uh, the, the advantages that they've received. I mean, um, I just wrote, the, I did some research recently, um, and, and, and there's, a, there's an investment firm that's actually done research on this, but there's 6.5 trillion rand that's circulating in the South African economy today. And of that, uh, only 4.4% is managed by black asset managers now. If you look at where that money is being put, it's not being put behind uh, black companies and so on. It's being put. It's being put. It's being put behind white companies. So there's still that struggle even today. That you know, irrespective of the fact that you you've gained the experience. You know, people used to say when I started, okay, you're too young. You need to get experience. So I went ahead and I got experience. Then okay, you, you're not educated enough. You go and you get the education. Yeah, but now you know you you don't have this. You don't have this. So you're constantly having to jump through hoops. And for me, I think the big question is, you know, I agree with what Varashni said. What I might disagree with, and it's probably not disagree, but I feel like talking is no longer, you know, you you explain to your white friend, Mm -hmm. but you have to actually experience what we're talking about for you to to really understand. You know, if if we, if I talk to you and, and, and you know, I've spoken many times to many people about this and you get told about, oh, it's reverse racism, Mm -hmm. It's this and it's that. I just don't feel that they're getting it. So and tell me, and, and, Rory, yeah. as as a as a good mate, um, what do I need to know? Like, how would you, you know, you say talking, the talking part is done, um, and I think that you know, for for some some forward thinking white folk, it probably it probably is, and there's an action now that needs to be taken. But it seems like the large majority of of white people still need to get through that conversational stage. But let's just say we've got through that. How are you going to make it real for me? I mean, you and I are mates. What are you going to do to make me understand what it's like to be black in South Africa, in the new South Africa, democratic South Africa, 21 years on? Well, I think it's always easy to have these conversations until I ask you to give something up. Because I think that is where I will know that, you know, you're really committed to this thing because we've got finite resources, right? And if those, if those resources have to be shared between, between all of us, then it requires somebody to give something up for somebody else. Right. So the question is, what are you willing to? So we can talk until the cows come home, um, and you can empathize with me and so on, but until you get to a stage where you're willing to give something up um, for this for this fight, now, there's always the argument, yeah, you don't need to cut the pie into smaller pieces, just make the pie bigger, mm. and everybody has more. But then who, who's going to pay for the ingredients? Yes. Right. Everybody wants the pie to be bigger, but no one wants to pay for the ingredients. So, so ultimately, you know, the, the, what we're getting in, in the political sphere and so on about sharing more and, and so on, it, it all goes down to the point of if you're not willing to bleed for this, for this, for this freedom or this, this ideal state that we all want to be in, then you're not really committed to it, to be honest. You're just, you're just a 
paying lip service to it. Okay, so let's talk about the ingredients because I do I do think it's going to be difficult for for white people to give something up. Um, you know, I was I was looking at what I own. Um, I own a laptop and a cell phone and a car. Um, anyone can have that Renault Clear. It's fine. You can have it. It's, it's not a problem. But but I mean, you know, giving that even those things up are, is going to be difficult for me, right? But talking about you know owning the ingredients and who's going to pay for the ingredients. Would you be satisfied in white people then paying for the ingredients to make this country better? And what, you know, let's, let's talk seriously now. What are the ingredients? What do we need to pay for? In your mind, well, of course. Well, I haven't, yeah, I haven't, uh, I can't say I've applied deep thought to it, but, um, you know, in the past, for example, uh, Desmond Tutu suggested a black tax, so something to look at. I, I you know, I, I can't say any more than that because I haven't really looked into it, but I mean, not a black tax. Um, a wealth tax um, on white people. So those those are some of the things that have been put on the table. I'll tell you in my own personal experience, I, I just had a white guy who took me under his wing and treated me. And, you know, I remember when I first met him, he said to me, I said to him, you know, will you mentor me? And he said, you know what, I think you've had enough mentors in your life. What you now need are partners, right, genuine partners. And he took me into boardrooms and he he, he he did more than just because people people are more willing to put to pat you on the back than they are to give you money. So you know, oh, wonderful! You speak you speak the right way, and so on. Oh my goodness! You know, we never see black people, black young people like yourself, um, and they'll pat you on the back. But ultimately, a pat on the back doesn't do anything. And you know, you leave there, you feel good, but then thereafter, you're still stuck in the same position. But he gave those opportunities. <clears throat> for for to, to to go on to to work on specific things alongside him, to learn from him and to make money with him, yes. right? And so so he brought me. So by doing that, number one, he 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 shared his skill with me. Number two, he brought me into his social networks and he did this selflessly, right? So you need you need more of those types of interactions and and relationships. So if you're a CEO and you've got the professional associate. A position open. Make sure that it's a black person that you're putting in that role, right? mm. so that we can start to have those those changes. That is what's going to when you as a white person in front of your mates. I mean, there's a there's a classic story where me and this guy went into a meeting with a senior executive of one of the listed companies, and this senior executive was really really belligerent, right? And he really he was really bad towards me. So he said to my friend, "No, I know you." Um, you know, uh, you've, you've, you've earned your stripes and so on. But this guy, I don't know what, you know, where does he come from? I don't know if he's going to run away with my money and so on. That's, that's what the guy said to us. <laughs> it was the first time that, 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 that this guy that, that was mentoring me and had taken me under his wing. It was the first time that he actually confronted this reality. For me, it was, it was more of the same. So I was actually laid back. I was like, oh, okay, more of this. He was so shaken that he actually laid a complaint to the CEO directly of that company. And that guy, that guy was disciplined. And in fact, uh, in fact, he was eventually removed from that position because he had come to fully experience that he had seen, you know, I, I could have told him many times over about, oh, this happens, this happens. But he took it, he was literally mm. shaking <laughs> when he saw that. Amazing. And he said, and, 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 and the other time we then met with the CEO of another listed company and, you know, what he did was very, very, what he said to me, what he said when he introduced me, you know, he said, you know, I am so-and-so and, um, um, uh, you know, we're going to present this thing. And that over there is my colleague, Rory, right? So he did not say, 
that that's Rory. I'm mentoring him. That is Rory. I'm, no, he said this is my colleague. So afford all the rights and privileges of a colleague to to Rory as well. Now, when you have somebody that's doing that, what he's doing is he is investing his social capital in you. He's not just speaking about it, but he's literally putting himself on the line for you. Yes. Right? And that then elevates you. That then helps you to 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 be able to speak so people hear you just because he's vouching for you and gives you that time that you need to prove yourself, to, to, to prove your legitimacy as a person and the legitimacy of your ideas. Rory, uh, quickly, we're, we're running out of time here. Just one thing, you know, it's 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 lovely to hear your your thoughts because I think you put them down so well. I've always said that to you. But talk to me about what do you want me to change? How would, with you and I, I want to make this as, as as personal as possible. With you and I, what would you want me to change? Because arguably, not arguably, you are more successful than I am um, as a business person and, and probably in society as well. And that's that's saying something amazing because not only are you clever and more intelligent, but you've had this legacy issue and still you're above me and br- like even better. What can I give to you or how can I engage with you or around us that – so that we come to a better place uh, in the future. Yeah, I think you're being generous there, Andrew. Um, <clears throat> look, I haven't really given that a lot of thought, so I'm just, you know, I'm going to think aloud. But I think more than what you do, what you what you change towards me, I think what we need to see white society do is start to have those conversations internally. Mm. You know, um, we constantly, and I've said this, when 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 a black person says something that the black community feels is out of turn, you get the black community standing up and people, notable people in the black community saying, "Not in our name, right?" Yes. In the white community, when 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 a white guy stands up and says something that is out of line, the the, the leaders or what we would call the leaders within the white community are very quiet, right? Yes. Or at least they're a lot more quiet in relation to when Jacob Zuma says something out of turn. So they're very loud when Jacob Zuma says something out of turn, but are very, very quiet when somebody within their group mm. says something. I mean, yeah. I mean, I mean, we, we remember Zelda, Zelda's uh, rant recently. Mm. It, they were very quiet in relation to, to, to when something else happens that a black person does. So what, what I need you to do as my friend is to start to, to, to not just have the conversations with me because they make you feel better because you say, oh, at least, you know, at least I am interacting with Rory. I'm good enough. We need, we need, <laughs> That's we need the only you. reason I'm interacting with we you. <laughs> need you. And, and look, uh, I, I'm just using you as an example, right, as a proxy. But good, good, I, yeah, do I that. Need you, I need you to start to, to, to be more louder and, and more vociferous in, 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 in engaging the white community in that conversation because when it comes from me, it sounds like an attack. Yes. Right. So when it comes from you, then perhaps you've got that legitimacy or whatever it is, and then and then I need you to start living, you know, live what you speak, so that it so that people do see that okay, this is real. You know, I'm not just speaking about it. White people right now feel like they're just heads in the heads in the sand, mm. or don't even want to. They're higher. They're playing higher than that. Oh my goodness! Another talk on racism. You guys are just can't you just get over this? But. Maybe maybe it needs to stop coming from black people. Maybe it needs to come from white people who feel they're enlightened to start to say, guys, we need to we need to get with the program, you know, and and put pressure on the likes of Helen Villa and so on that are prominent white leaders to say you are not doing enough 
mm. on your side to make sure that this thing is resolved and that these conversations are had in a constructive manner. Rory, I couldn't agree with you more, and I endeavor to do whatever it takes to get to a better place in South Africa. You have my word on that, and I look forward to you challenging me more. I think that's the cool thing about having a friend like Rory. Thank you so much, Rory Sang Shabalala, uh, a, a black friend of mine um, who's just told me what I need to do, which I think is cool. And this is this is all stipulated and, and stimulated from Varashni Pillay, who's standing or sitting with me here in studio talking about what um, – what six things white people need to know about black people. Go and read that article again. It's just incredible. Uh, Varashni, very brave. Thank you so much. I know you've taken a lot of personal attack. People are saying, but you're affluent, but you're this, but you're that. Mm-hmm. But I think we need to have more conversations, more discussions, um, more action around this. And uh, congratulations on, on leading this through. Yes, and thank you. You were very brave too. That was a really amazing exercise, Andrew. Well done for making yourself that vulnerable. I do feel vulnerable, but I think it's a good it's a good space to be in, and that's where we need to be. Um, so thank you so much, and uh, thanks for joining us on CliffCentral.com. We've been speaking to Varashni Pillay for the last hour about six things that white people should know about black people. Check out her, her columns. Uh, on the Mail and Guardian. She's got some really interesting things to say. You can follow her on Twitter as well, at Varushni. And hey, if you missed any of this and you want to check it out, check out the podcast, www.cliffcentral.com. From me, it is Friday. My day is done. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you again next week. The Sex Show with Jonty and Super Sexy Spider is up next. Have yourself a lovely day and a fantastic weekend. Rock on, man. Ciao.